This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. The Russian invasion of Ukraine, with tens of thousands of casualties, has understandably gripped the attention of Europeans and Americans since it began early in 2022. Yet those in Africa may be more fixated on the ongoing deadly conflict in the Congo, where millions have died over the past couple of decades. What is driving the seemingly endless war in the heart of Africa? Is there anything that can stop it? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Jason Stearns, assistant professor in the School of International Studies at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, and founder and director of the Congo Research Group at New York University. He's the author of two books, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, The Collapse of the Congo and the Great War of Africa, and more recently, The War That Doesn't Say Its Name, The Unending Conflict in the Congo, which has just been published by Princeton University Press. Thanks for being with us today, Jason Sturds. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Great to have you and congratulations on the book. So having now read two of your books, you know, the titles have a certain dispiriting quality about them. I think you would agree. Uh, Your first book, Dancing in the Glory of Monsters, has a certain sinister ring. Uh, So maybe you could start by giving us a little historical background on the contemporary conflicts in Congo, which I think understandably you think is a, you know, an important part of the story of what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think the history is very important. So there has been mass violence in the Congo since 1993, but the war properly started in September of 1996. Some people call that the first Congo war. The And it really, in order to best describe what happened, it's useful to break that down into three different factors. Um, the first one, and the reason it's useful to do this is because those same three factors then in different manifestations and importance percolate through until the present day. So it's useful to lay out some of the contributing factors that brought about mass violence in the Congo in 1996. And the first one really is something that dates back to the colonial days, and that's local struggles over uh, power and identity. Um, and in the Eastern Congo in particular, what these divide the population into people who consider themselves as quote unquote indigenous and people who are considered to be uh, foreigners or not Congolese or foreign descent. And in particular, people of Rwandan origin, people who are often kind of called Kenya Rwanda speakers or Rwandophone, Rwandophones. And this population which is small in terms of the entire Congo, but uh, in some places has the demographic majority, um, is due to migrations that have happened over centuries, 
and in particular, a mass migration facilitated by the Belgian colonial power in the colonial days between roughly 1930 and 1950 into the Eastern Congo to help Belgians on their plantations and their mines to create a docile labor force for the Belgian uh, Belgians to use. And this really brought about a mass migration in some places, created groups that were the demographic majority in the Eastern Congo. That then primed these parts for conflicts immediately after independence uh, because the Belgians had set up the system so that only people who were considered to be, quote unquote, indigenous or of the local customary uh, ruling community were able to have act to have rights and have access to land. And so that those local conflicts were, if you will, one strand on the triple helix that then produced conflict. The other strand was the national state or a state that had been hollowed out over 32 years of rule under the authoritarian fist of Mobutu Sese Seko, um, who had started off ruling through strength and ended up ruling through weakness. And so, whereas in 1965, when he first came to power, Mobutu, you know, created one of the strongest public services uh, in Africa, boosted by copper revenues. It has a huge copper mining potential. Uh, ended up uh, pitting his uh, pitting leaders against each other, uh, pitting services, creating proliferation of services, managing a large part of the budget through his own personal office and hollowing out the state. So you had an extremely dysfunctional bureaucracy, security services by the time the war started in 1996. And in particular, Mobutu, who was on his last legs at that time, started to use that first strand of the triple helix, the local conflicts over power and identity as a way to stay in power. And so increasingly, as he as his grip slipped on power after 32 years of rule, he started fanning the flames of ethnic divisionism on the periphery of the state. So those are the first two strands. Um, and the second, the third one, and the final one, and the trigger for the conflict in 1996 were regional conflicts. And so by the time, and this again was part of Mobutu's playbook, by the time the war started in 1996, there were rebel groups from a handful of neighboring countries, from Angola, from Sudan, from Burundi, and especially from Rwanda, that had their rear bases in the Congo. Um, this was not an accident. Obviously, it was easy for them to, to, to mobilize out of the Congo. It's a vast, vast territory the size of the United States east of the Mississippi. Um, but also Mobutu you were, you, was using these regional rebel groups to, to get leverage on his neighboring countries. Uh, and in particular, the most important one and the one that triggered the entire affair were, were, were Rwandan rebel groups who were um, included people who had participated in the 1994, participated and organized the 1994 genocide in Rwanda that killed uh, 800, up to 800,000 people. Those people had then sought refuge in refugee camps in the Eastern Congo, were running those refugee camps in Eastern Congo and continuing to launch attacks into Rwanda uh, with the complicity of the Zairean or Congolese government of Mobutu. And that was what triggered uh, an invasion in the fall of 1996, led by a coalition of regional countries. It really was a regional invasion more than a Congolese rebellion called the AFDL. 
um, backed in particular by the Rwandan Ugandan governments and then later by the Angolan government to overthrow Mobutu Sese Seko. Well, initially to break up these camps and then eventually to overthrow Mobutu. They overthrew Mobutu in, 1990, in May of 1997, put Laurent Kabila into power, and then set up this very tenuous rule in Kinshasa where you had a, a, a figurehead Congolese president, Laurent Kabila, um, but the backbone of his army, of his administration, was actually foreign. The, the head of his army at a certain point, James Kabarebe, is now the Rwandan Minister of Defense. His own inner circle was run by Rwandans. The security services was run, were run by, was run by Rwandans in particular. And that set up an untenable situation for him, a rather paranoid figure uh, to begin with. And eventually he figured out that his days were counted if uh, he wasn't able to um, seize a situation, control the situation himself. And he and made a move, a, a fateful move in, in June of 1998 to kick out the Rwandans and the Ugandans to ask their for these foreign troops to go home. That then triggered the Second Congo War in August, the 4th of August of 1998. It saw the Rwandans reinvade the Eastern Congo, afraid that they were going to lose influence and control. At this time, the Rwandan rebellion that was launching attacks into Rwanda was very much still vigorous and alive and launching those attacks into, Eastern, uh, into, into Rwanda from the Eastern Congo. They partnered with the Ugandans once again. Uh, but this time, instead of uh, the continent being against the Congolese ruler, as it was in the case of Mobutu, this new war, the Second Congo War, split the continent down the middle. And so Ugandans and Rwandans almost took the capital of Kinshasa, but the Angolan government in particular, and then later the Zimbabwean government, propped up Laurent Kabila and saved him, and then eventually split the country into three main parts, the parts controlled by Rwandan government and its proxy, part controlled by the Ugandan government and its proxies, and then the part controlled by what was called the government of the Congo that was partnering with Angola uh, and, uh, and Zimbabwe. Uh, so and so can, I, can I interrupt for just a second? I mean, it makes it sound like there's a kind of new version of colonialism that's happening within the heart of Africa. Is that a misunderstanding or is that what you mean? Well, it's... Uh, this war was definitely a continental war. This was, had, this was not at all a civil war. This was a war that was prompted, was fueled by regional intervention. Um, so I think calling it colonialism is creating a parallel that I'm not sure is terribly helpful. There, there were elements, I guess, that you could call uh, that could have been helpful. Uh, I mean, elements of that could have been similar to colonialism, and certainly in terms of the extraction, exploitation of natural resources, that is true. And it happened in complicity, one could say, with with Western powers, including the United States, not so much the resource extraction, the U.S. didn't benefit that much from the resource extraction, but the U.S. government in particular was, and this is something, again, that continues into the present day, uh, the U.S. government in particular was looking the other way when it came to especially Rwandan and Ugandan intervention in the Eastern Congo. At that point, the Rwandans and Ugandans did have um, a, a strong security imperative uh, that, that made sense. And this was the days of, of Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. They saw that as a reasonable excuse. And so to what extent you know, it was colonialism, I think, could be a longer debate, but certainly uh, external foreign intervention to, to, to extract and to benefit from the resources 
of the Congo, that certainly is, um, that certainly was one of the drivers. Right. So, I mean, I don't want to spend all our time on the past, but I, I recently uh, interviewed a guy who named Kyle Rastiala from UCLA, who's written a book about uh, Ralph Bunch, uh, the you know namesake of our institute. And so he's written this long biography and one of the you know cases of Ralph Bunch's activities on the international scene was, you know, indeed the independence of Congo yeah. uh, in the early 60s. And there was this discussion, I guess, Eleanor Roosevelt was sort of, you know, skeptical of the idea that uh, Congo was ready for independence. And this was a broader kind of discussion among colonial powers, really, uh, about whether, you know, some of these countries were ready for for independence. And uh, I think Ralph Bunch, you know, looked at that stance a bit, you know, askance and and thought, you know, decolonization was a moral imperative and something that just simply had to happen. And who, who, who were these other parties to say that, uh, you know, these countries aren't ready. But eventually, I think later on in his life, he did come to believe that things had not really been, you know, in, in a good place for Congo to, um, you know, to go its own way and largely due to Belgian malfeasance. But um, I mean, how, as I say, I don't want to you know spend the whole time talking about the past, but I'm curious. That seems to have been a kind of seminal moment, even in your own you know narrative of of the history of uh, Congolese violence. Well, I certainly think that you know for us, you say we don't want to spend every, all the time on the past. The past seems like it's a long way away, uh, especially Belgian colonialism seems to us like it's a long way away, but. You know, imagine trying to talk about racism in the United States today without talking about Jim Crow or slavery. I mean, we're still grappling in the United States with the legacies of these, you know, extremely intrusive, brutal uh, institutions. It, you know, the same goes for the Congo, which was ruled through one of the most extractive and brutal uh, forms of colonialism um, since 1885 under Leopold II, who didn't even rule it as a colony, but ruled it as a personal fiefdom, the Congo Free State, and only later transferred it to the Belgian, uh, to, Bel- to, to Belgium, to Belgian government. And so I, I do think that the legacy of, of colonialism is extremely important in understanding the conflicts of, of today. And the, and the attitude, I think, you know, Ralph Bunch's attitude, I think was the right one to, was the right one to take. Unfortunately, Belgium really set the Congo up to fail um, by not giving it any of the institutions, the resources or the talents necessary or preparing the country for independence. And so a lot of the tragedy um, post-independence, first the assassination of its first prime minister, Patrice Lumumba, only after three months in office, and then the chaos of a civil war that engulfed the country with the complicity, especially of the Belgian and other foreign countries, and then authoritarianism under Mobutu Sese Seko, all of that uh, had strong, strong influence from foreign countries, Belgium, but the United States and France as well. Right. So, I mean, given that the past, I and mean, I think that's an interesting analogy or comparison with, you know, our understanding of race in the United States and the, the weight of the past in that uh, history, um, you know, similarly, there's a, an issue about the weight of the past in regard to the colonial past. But let's, um, you know, move up a, a bit to the more to the present and to your latest book. And, um, you know, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what exactly is going on now. What's why is this the war that doesn't say its name? Yeah. 
So I'll, I'll, and I, again, apologies for trying to summarize things very quickly here, but I'll pick up sort of where I left off previously, because that's sort of where my book starts in the sense that, as I said, you had the first Congo war, 1996 to 1997, the second Congo war, 1998, with the splitting up of the country in different parts, uh, with foreign intervention that came to an end in, um, in June of 2003, when the country was reunited, a new constitution was written, and the Congo entered what is called the Third Republic, um, with a new a new national government, a reunited country, but also new and for the first time strong decentralized democratic institutions: a national parliament, provincial parliaments. Um, you had a, a electoral commission, a human rights commission, a media commission. Uh, regular elections at all levels. And so on paper, it had, you know, had a very strong, very democratic constitution that was grappling itself with all of these different uh, abusive legacies of the past in terms of authoritarianism, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it, it launched itself into this new age. It held elections. It confirmed Joseph Kabila, the son of Laurent Kabila as president. Laurent Kabila had been killed in office and been succeeded by his son. And so Joseph Kabila became the first president in 2006 of this reunited country. Uh, and, you know, that should have been the end of the story. And the Congo would have been in a post-conflict period, uh, rebuilding institutions and so on and so forth. The problem was that the, the one of the main signatories of the peace deal, the Rwandan-backed proxies, they control a third of the country, called the RCD, the Congolese Rally for Democracy, they, and this is the magic of all peace processes. How can you get people to sign on to a peace process and sign on to something and bind their hands only to lose power? And that's what failed in the peace process. And so the, the Rwandan-backed rebels, the RCD, were extremely unpopular. And so when they went to elections in 2006, they were decimated. They won almost nothing uh, in these elections. And they knew this. And in order to... Um, in order to prepare for that, they created a rebellion in the Eastern Congo and as plan B, if you will, if they weren't able to gain power through elections, they would try to hold on to power uh, through through military means. And so th this was thus was born the CNDP that then had as its successor movement, the M23, that is uh, again in a, in a phase of resurgence in the Eastern Congo. They once again have taken territory, one, ter territory once again with Ron and backing in recent weeks. Um, and so that's one part of the story of why war continued in Eastern Congo, a failed peace deal and the persistence of, uh, of armed groups. But the, that wasn't the, the only reason. Um, the, another factor, and today you have 120 different armed groups in the Eastern Congo, so blaming everything on one, one group doesn't make sense, is a Congolese government that became invested in conflict. And what I mean by that is a Congolese government that instead of trying to build up a strong national security, national security service, army, police, etc., to rule through strength, what it did is fall back on the habits of Mobutu Sese Seko and created a proliferation uh, of armed groups that often were backed by or complicit with different levels of the army, but also security service that was used more by the government to back to proof it against coups and to make sure the army was deployed far in the east, uh, allowed to benefit from racketeering and extraction of resources in eastern Congo and far away from Kinshasa, where the army was a threat to the political elite. 
And so thus, through a series of relatively complex historical sequences, um, you created a Congolese state that was really invested in, um, in conflicts, uh, as well as a Rwandan government, the neighboring government that became invested in conflict. And so you have this complex negative equilibrium established um, that, uh, that saw many of the actors on all sides of the conflict invested in the state of conflict and not have an interest in creating a stable uh, conflict. Right. So, I mean, the main explanatory burden of the book is to explain why you have this war that just seems to be interminable. And I mean, you say that it's not the case that, you know, it can't be stopped, but that there are, you know, certain actors who have emerged, who have an investment or have a, you know, uh, a, a desire to keep the conflict going. And so you talk about the emergence of a, what you call a military bourgeoisie that has an interest in the continuation of conflict. So maybe you could talk a, a little bit more about what you mean by that. Yes, absolutely. And I don't want to make it seem too um, Machiavellian. I don't think the Congolese conflict is one that where one can imagine a bunch of puppet masters pulling the strings and extracting resources, you know, cackling away in smoke-filled rooms as they benefit from the suffering of the Congolese people. It's a system. It's not as, as simply extractive as I just described it, that caricature. It's a system of, of, of violence in which many different actors produce this negative equilibrium. And many of those actors actually interviewing them for my book they know exactly well what's going on. They don't like the system, but they play a role in it, even though they don't like the system. They can't do otherwise. And so it's, it's just, it really is a, a tragedy. But to answer your question, I think in order to understand that, you need to go back um, to Joseph Kabila's rule and a fateful decision that he made in when the government, these various different belligerents uh, were merged into a national uh, government to prioritize loyalty over discipline and his own or the safety of the political elites over the stability of the country. Now, we have to remember that Joseph Kabila's father, Laurent Kabila, was shot in office and killed by his own bodyguard. Uh, the threat now that during this integration of belligerence in 2003, you know, you had Kabila sitting around a table with his former enemies. And in particular, you had the bodyguards, hundreds and thousands of uh, and former enemy soldiers deployed in Kinshasa. And so the threat of being overthrown through a coup was very much real. And so when the army integration process took place, um, the, Joseph Kabila decided along with others to make sure that integration actually did one thing in particular, which was ensure this, his own, own safety and the safety of the political elites. And to do so, what he did was he created, he reinforced these patronage networks that existed, uh, this fragmentation and clientelism that already existed within the army to reinforce that. And that produced a system that it created through its own structures an investment in conflict. And just to give you an example, in 2014, when I did research into this, uh, up to 90% up to of officers' remuneration in the army depended on legal or extra-legal payments that were directly linked to military operations. And so what this means is that um, you, as a, as a military officer in the Congo, it was extremely difficult to prosper without being involved in conflict. And so you, you earn a salary of about $100 a month, even as a general in the army. Your official statutory salary would be about $100 a month. 
And then you receive a whole raft of, of both legal and illegal uh, or extra legal payments that had to do with you being deployed in military operations. There was uh, uh, a hazard pay. There was a bonus for conducting military operations. There was a all kinds of different bonuses. And then you had, of course, the racketeering and extraction that comes with being deployed. In, and, and that's the bulk of, 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 of the money. And so even the current president, uh, Felix Chisichetti, who came into office in 2019, he said that, and I, I'll quote from him, he says, there's a lot of shenanigans undermining our own security forces. This is a mafia. This is the law of omerta, the code of silence. That's what we have to tackle. That's what he said about his own army after being in office for several for several years. And so the army itself has sort of turned inwards. And what I say in the book, drawing on um, uh, the theory uh, of, I call it involution, because it's turned in on itself and it reproduces the same patterns. It's, it's stuck in a rut, incapable of, of, of jumping, jumping out of that. And so again, this is not a grand conspiracy of Joseph Kabila, or even now Felix Chisikedi, who's inherited this system, but it's due to the sheer multiplicity of players and the shadowy nature of these networks, each actor finds it difficult to imagine another logic of being, even though each actor within the system finds its own system reprehensible. So you argue in the book that um, there are aspects of what you've described and found in, um, in Congo elsewhere in Africa. And I, I want to ask you, you know, what, in what exactly you mean by that? Um, Cause I think you would probably agree that there's a lot of, you know, sort of offhand characterization of Africa as if it were all kind of one place. And, you know, there's certainly conflict going on in Ethiopia, Eritrea, uh, and other places around the continent. But the whole the whole place is not, you know, up in, in conflict, so to speak. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, what what it is about Congo that also seems to be happening in other places and how maybe some of these other places are different. Yeah, I think one of the things, I mean, you're absolutely right. Each conflict and the book is largely a book about the Congo and my entire approach, my methodological approach in the Congo or with this book is to really to sit in the conflict, to understand it, to absorb it, to understand the various actors and their interests and to understand the history that they draw on that has produced this violent equilibrium that I described. And I think that's important. In, in every conflict, really, that's the first thing you need to do is understand, deeply understand and empathize, even if you want to condemn, but understand where these people are, are coming from. The, the reason there is conflict in the Congo is not because Congolese are inhuman or, or violent by their very nature. It's because of the political system and the histories that have produced this particular situation. But as you say, uh, and as I've written, the there are some things, some aspects of what we see in the Congo that have been reproduced elsewhere, not just in, in Africa, but I would argue elsewhere in the, in the world. Uh, and, and that's this state that has become invested in conflict. That's this negative equilibrium um, that actually works fairly well with uh, semi-liberal democracies that um, sees large parts of the, of the national territory um, handed over, if you will, to armed groups. And these sort of these perverse symbioses, because I call it a symbiosis, because you have various sides of the conflict invested in conflict, these perverse symbioses that are reproduced in other places. And I think that what you can see, and this is, a, I think, a characteristic of conflict in general on the African continent today, is 
side by side with bustling metropolises, um, with uh, with strong and growing economies in parts places like Ghana, uh, Kenya, um, uh, Nigeria, Senegal. Uh, you see parts of the continent in which you have. Uh, violence has become increasingly anchored and difficult to, and entrenched and difficult to uproot. Uh, I would, large parts of the Sahel, so Nigeria, I think, is a, is a case in point for this, but also large parts of the Sahel, uh, parts of uh, certainly South Sudan are like this. And in those various countries, there's a similar phenomenon that's taking place. You look at Nigeria, for example, you have a government that is increasingly complicit and numerous government commissions in Nigeria have documented this, how be it Boko Haram or militancy uh, in, uh, in the northwest of the country or in the southeastern uh, Delta, um, uh, Niger Delta region. In these various parts of the country, the government itself has, has become complicit in much of this violence and because, has become has a very hard time uprooting this in part because its own system is complicit in this violence. And I think that's a similar system that has been reproduced uh, in other parts of the continent. And if, if, you, if something becomes reproduced and systemic, you really have to ask yourself, well, what aspect of the international system has, uh, has made this possible or has reinforced this? And I think that there we need to look to, to several trends. Uh, I certainly think that both the liberalization of uh, Africa's uh, polity, but also economies since the late 1980s, early 1990s, plays a role in this. Uh, both democratization, uh, because it, it, in democracy itself or uh, the political systems that have emerged out of this hybrid, hybrid democracies in various parts of the continent have become complicit with this violence but also the neoliberalization of the economies across the continent has, has facilitated this. And you can see this uh, in the Congo very clearly as much of the economy, the conflict economies of the Eastern Congo have been tied into the international system in different shapes and forms. Today, for example, just to give an example, um, the Rwandan governments, the, the Ugandan governments, both of whom are still involved in the conflict in the Eastern Congo, um, their largest exports are gold. And much of that gold, if not all of that gold, but much of that gold comes from the Eastern Congo. And so they stand to benefit from the state of disorder that persists or has persisted in the Eastern Congo. They don't even need to be there physically. They just need to make sure that disorder persists and is maintained in the Eastern Congo. And so I think, uh, and, and then of course that gold goes on to the international system, is flown mostly to Dubai, enters the international markets, same can be said for tin, same can be said for tantalum in the Eastern Congo. And so I think that the international system needs to be seen as part of this equation, whether it's the conflict in the Congo or other conflicts on the continent as well. Big issues to address. Um, so I want to uh, maybe end with uh, a question that goes beyond your your book, but uh, I sort of hinted at it in the beginning, in the introduction, and that has to do with Africans' perception of what's going on in the world today. I mean, obviously, Americans and Europeans have been very, uh, you know, seized, understandably, by concern about what's been happening in Ukraine. But I gather that 
you know, maybe the case in Africa, maybe the case in Congo, but not necessarily in the same way because they feel like they have their own conflicts that maybe aren't getting the attention that the world uh, should be giving them from, from their perspective. Could you comment on that, uh, on those perceptions? Well, I'm not Congolese, but we did do a poll, part of a research institute uh, based out of New York University, the partners with the Congolese Research Institute, institute that they carried out a poll. We, we do polling regularly in the Congo on a host of issues, but we asked about the conflict in the Ukraine and, and the feelings. And so it was a, it was a nationwide face-to-face poll, uh, several thousand people polled, uh, randomly selected. And so it was representative of the Congolese population. Most people who answered um, were people who make around a dollar or less than a dollar a day. So, so poor people um, with poor education, um, you know, largely rural and so on and so forth. And so it was striking that their analysis is actually quite similar to my analysis, which is they found that Russia had a, a large part to a, a blame in the Ukrainian conflict, that what they were doing was reprehensible. Um, and that it should stop, but the international community was hypocritical about this because there is so much conflict everywhere in the world and the amount of money, attention, and sympathy that was being expressed for Ukraine was not being, could not be found elsewhere, including for the Congo. So you can see that fairly clearly expressed through the results of that poll, and that reflects my conversations with Congolese uh, as well, which is that uh, the United States, other countries are, are pumping, you know, just extraordinary amounts of money, weapons, uh, attention onto this conflict in the Ukraine that cannot be found for many of the other conflicts in the world, for many of the other situations uh, in the world. And I think that that is really in my conversations with Congolese, but other people in the African continent, that hypocrisy um, that you see is really what animates, I think, a lot of the skepticism that Congolese have for West, the West stance on Ukraine. Right. I mean, I think there's been a sense more generally that, um, you know, colonial legacies, which you've mentioned the importance of, um, you know, have kind of persisted in other parts of the world and, and they view the current conflict in Ukraine, uh, you know, to a considerable degree through that lens and are therefore perhaps not quite so, you know, eager to be involved and uh, don't necessarily see the West as, you know, the un- unambiguous good guy in this. Yes. And I think that, I mean, Russia's, you know, Russia's greatest asset here is the fact that they were not to the same degree. Well, they were not in Africa, colonial power. They were colonial power, obviously, elsewhere. And, you know, within the Soviet archipelago, certainly uh, were extremely brutal and extractive in their own right. But in Africa, they they did not. They they played a role during the Cold War, obviously. But um, certainly in the Congo, they don't have the legacy that the United States or France or Belgium has in terms of their complicity with extractive abusive rule in the Congo. And so I think there's a lot more that you can see now on the continent, whether it's in Mali or in the Central African Republic, or even in the Congo, uh, you can see the beginnings of this, elites turning to Russia and, and you have quite a bit of sympathy amongst protesters, not so much because they love Russia. It's a rejection of the status quo more than falling in love with what Russia stands for. 
Fascinating. Well, thank you very much. Um, we're going to end it there. Th- thanks uh, for today's episode. I want to thank Jason Stearns of Simon Fraser University for sharing his insights about the situation in Congo and beyond. Uh, look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.